Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fascinating episode of the Print Design Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks so much for listening and tuning in this week here. Today on the show, my guest is Lou Prestia. He is a senior product manager with Pantone Graphics. Pantone, you might have heard of them. You've obviously heard of them. If you're a graphic designer, you know Pantone. You've heard of Pantone. You've seen the color guides. You know all about it. Or do you? In this episode, Lou and I talk about the making of a Pantone book, what's involved, how the color accuracy is determined, how the, uh, the work that goes into creating one of these things, how many new colors are added every time they make one of these Pantone guidebooks, how often are they making these Pantone guidebooks. So much interesting information in here. So this episode is incredible just and, and very interesting from learning more about Pantone, how they operate, and how they create the Pantone color formula guides, as well as the color bridge guides and things like that. But it's also really interesting for that designer out there, and maybe you're that designer, who likes to know sort of the nuts and bolts that go into creating something. Not just like, hey, how it's made, like the 10,000 foot view, but like right down to how are these measured and, and the accuracy, how is that determined from run to run to run? And it gives us all of the details in this episode. Now, a little bit of a teaser preview as well. After this interview, Lou and I were chatting for a little bit and he actually offered to send me some Pantone press sheets. Now, I am a sucker for press sheets. I freaking love press sheets, seeing things in their like full press printed form before they're cut down and trimmed down to individual bits. And he sent them to me and they've arrived. And I have not opened or looked at them. I've had them for like a week and a half. I have not opened them or looked at them yet. I'm saving the first reveal for an unboxing video that I'm filming for the YouTube channel coming up in the coming days here. So I'm super excited about that. But this episode is absolutely fascinating. So let's just get right to it. Let's hear a little bit about Pantone and how these books are made and the history of some Pantone and all that jazz. Cue the intro. Welcome to the Print Design Podcast, the show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rocked their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So let's talk ink on paper. Lou, welcome to the Print Design Podcast. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me. No, I'm excited to have you. Excited to get into this. And Pantone has one of those names that if you are at all around the graphics or print industry, you know exactly what they do. You know exactly what's going on with them. Um, but not a lot about how they actually come together or why they came together. Um, so I'm excited to get into some of that stuff. Happy to talk to you today. Perfect. Well, before we get into that, why don't you give a little brief introduction about yourself um, and, and how you landed in this spot with Pantone Gravis? 
Sure. So my name is Luke Prestia. I am the product manager for the Pantone Graphics products, which is all the formula guides like the ones you see behind me here. Uh, my background is in color management and printing. So I have a degree in printing from our Rochester Institute of Technology. Worked over the years at a number of different places, including Adobe in the early days of color management. Um, subsequently, for the last 10 years, worked for EFI as the product manager around color technology for the Fiery products at, at EFI. And I came to Pantone the end of 20, uh, 2020 in this product management role to, to work on the Pantone products. Awesome. So throughout your career, you have been, I would assume you've been using Pantone products and this is your sort of first time, you know, within within the walls, I guess you could say. Sure, that's certainly true. I mean, Pantone products are used, you know, all across the graphic arts industry, both by designers, which I have not, not a designer, but also by all the print production people. So mm -hmm. everywhere that I've worked, both on software and hardware technology for people who do print production. Also, when I was a color consultant for about 10 years, we worked with lots of customers that wanted to match Pantone colors. And of course at EFI, it's critical that products like the Fiery Digital Front End can help the print producer get the colors that the designer expected from the Pantone books. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to get into the absolute, you know, science of it all, but it's like, it sounds like it would be extremely complicated to make sure all of this stuff aligns and is giving a desired result. It's gotten a lot easier. Color management has come a long way in the recent years, and so it's it's gotten a bit easier for print providers to do this if they know what they're expecting and the graphic designer knows what they're expecting. Yeah, definitely still a science, though. So I remember, Lou, when my first interaction with Pantos, and my background is actually on the production side of the print industry, um, and running presses for a number of time, uh, a number of years. And I remember mixing Pantones using the formulas in the book um, on a little like grade nine science scale where you sort of slide the gram bars and the 10 gram bars and stuff across. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would just hand mix it on a coated uh, board sheet to get the desired Pantone color. And that is the sort of the, the truest connection on how these colors come together and how these colors are created. Sure. Well, that's the origin of the Pantone system was all about how to mix those colors to give the designer what they want and to give the brand what they want for their brand color so that it's consistent from one press run to another and even from one printing location to another. Using mm, and, spot colored inks ensures that. And how many colors are in that graphics guide right now today? Well, the, the formula guide, which is the one that is made up of spot colors, is uh, is about 2,100 colors right now. Okay. And then you've got the metallics, and then you've got the 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 neons and the, um, the word? pastels. There's, there's pastels and neons. That's uh, a few hundred colors. There's metallics, which is, I think, 455 colors. Then there's also our formula guides, which are, uh, excuse me, our CMYK guides, which are actually more colors. Those are about 2,600 colors each. They give the designer more choices, but they're just in CMYK, so they're kind of dull. Yeah, yeah. They're What's just great like... about the formula guide is because it's printed with spot color, we have this huge color gamut. So the designer gets to kind of go wherever their desire takes them, including some very bright saturated colors that 
we actually can't print on the CMYK press, which is why you used to mix those inks. Yeah, when it's just not possible. So give me, I think this is a nice transition to like a little bit of history of Pantone, because when did Pantone first launch to the graphics industry? And did they start serving that industry with with 10 colors and it's grown to where it's at now? Or, or how did that all start? I, I can't tell you the exact history of it, except to say that it started in the 1960s when an organization or a printing company in New York started to standardize the way they specified colors and then colors specify colors to them or customers specify colors to them. Um, And that's the original founders of the Pantone organization. So I don't know the numbers, but I'd imagine there was some much smaller number probably in the hundreds of colors that they could match at that time. And then as the product grew and the product popularity grew, and of course it's just a fantastic tool for designers, Naturally, people always want more. They want more colors. So we're still adding colors today. We typically every 12 to 18 months or two years, we add new colors. Now we have a little delay here with the COVID situation, but you can mm-hmm. be sure that in the next couple of years, we'll come with yet more colors to give the designer more choices. How does how does a color get discovered? Because the layperson looking at the Pantone book would just say, yeah, is there more colors than this? Well, there's millions of colors that we can see, right? There's only 2,100 colors in our guide. The way colors get discovered is that we look at trend, right? So we have two products essentially at Pantone in terms of color systems. We have the graphics products, which are used for industrial design and graphic design, Mm -hmm. printing and publishing. Those are the, the printed guides that I'm talking to you about and that are sitting behind me here. Then there's our fashion home interiors products. These are the textile guides. Our textile guides come on cotton and polyester, and some of them are printed on paper, but they're entire in, in sort of designed for fashion design and for home interior decoration. And there's many more colors in those. There's 3,000 or more colors in those guides. Whoa. The reason is that when I dye fabrics to manufacture textiles, such as mm-hmm. clothing or home decor, kinds of materials. I have very, very precise control with dyes. You know from your experience in the printing industry that things are not always perfectly controlled in the printing industry, Mm -hmm. even if I mix up a Pantone ink very carefully. During the course of the day that I run it, I'm going to have things change on the press in terms of my ink water balance, in terms of temperature, humidity changes, shifts in the substrate because the paper isn't always very equal. Mm -hmm. So my color is going to move a little bit. So to answer your question, the way a color gets discovered is, number one, it has to be on trend. So we look to our fashion guides for that, and we look to our Pantone Color Institute experts about what's changing and what are the newest color trends, and we pull a little bit from that. We also discover colors because we get a lot of customer feedback. So I talk to customers practically every week. We have interviews with customers, and we continue to seek interviews with customers. Incidentally, for those of you in the audience that want to speak to Pantone, it should be pretty easy to find me on LinkedIn and we can connect and you can give me ideas. But I have people say all the time, like, I need this color, but I need it darker. I need a color in between these two colors. So mm-hmm. that's another big place that it comes from. And finally, it comes from the reproducibility part of it that I talked about. It has to be new, but different enough from the other colors that when the printer goes and puts it on the press, it's unique. 
Yeah, definitely has to stand out and be different because there's some that, you know, seemingly looking at it so close, you know, just by breathing on it, you could go darker or lighter either either direction. Correct. And you see that in the, certainly in the original colors from the original Pantone formula guides, these colors mainly had one color per page. It just varied in lightness and darkness from the bottom to the top of the page by mixing in uh, transparent white ink or a, a black ink to make it darker. Today, we tend to add some colors that are in between, and you don't always get that whole step down of the colors on the page, but it just depends on how different the color we're adding is each each time. Sonny, as soon as you mentioned transparent white, I'm immediately taken back to, like I said, that hand mixing on that scale. And some of the hardest colors to reproduce and to actually hand mix were the ones that were 98% transparent white with 0.3 grams of that and 0.4 grams of that and 0.3 grams of something else. Trying to get that dialed in was extremely challenging. Yeah, so... One of the things that we talk to our customers about and that X-Rite, our parent firm, also talks about is we talk about the level of color maturity, the level of sort of color development that companies have. And typically when people are at an early stage of color matching and color management, if you want to call it that, they're working visually, which is how you worked on the press those many years ago. You messed yeah. it up and you put the book next to it. And if it looked right, then you went and printed it. Yep. But more and more, our customers move to higher levels of color sophistication. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, they move from not just visually assessing, but also measuring. So once you're measuring the colors with a spectrophotometer, like the X-ray equipment enables you to do, now yep. it's easier to mix those near white colors and those neutral colors and really get them neutral and check that they're neutral, not just by virtue of what you did on the scale, but also by virtue of verifying the way that it prints when you put it in the press and start to run it onto the substrate. Yeah, yeah. There's been big advances and things made. This was 15 years ago when I was mixing things, you know, on a little sign scale. So the advances since then have been huge, I'm sure. And I remember we would only mix 300 gram minimum batches just because in some of those more difficult colors, you just the more you mix the more control you have and the closer you can get seemingly when you're using, you know, rather than 0.3 grams of something, you're, you know, one and a half and, or whatever that is. Right. Um, and then we would, we had this one cupboard and this is more of just a funny story. We had this cupboard where, you know, if we mixed Pantone 200 and we only needed 50 grams of it, but there's still 250 left, it would sit in a styrofoam cup in numerical order in this giant shelf of styrofoam premixed cups. They would all skin over on the top. And then if you wanted to use it again, you know, you'd hope that you had it in this mysterious styrofoam cup cupboard and, uh, and skin it and just get started. Yeah, that was where it all started for me, Lou. Yeah, that's what an ink kitchen looks like today, too. <laughs> awesome. So it's not too far off. Good to hear. So much like uh, there's, well, there's a few tools that all designers, whether they are involved with print or not, recognize instantly and and are attracted to. And, and you know, those, those two things that come to mind, one is a loop, like a proper you know, printer's loop, just getting in there and having a look at print and dots and things. That's one thing that designers just love to do and see how it comes together. Mm-hmm. The other one 
is obviously a Pantone book. Anytime a designer can get their hands on a Pantone book and flip through, um, it's just there's something special about it. They're really attracted to it. You know, how did Pantone books become such this, you know, mainstream designer pop culture item? Well, I think the Pantone book has a sort of a pop culture appeal, if you will, to the graphic designer, because this is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, ultimately, if you're doing conventional graphic design and graphic design for print, as good as it looks on your screen, the way you do design today and have for the last 20 or 30 years, when you print it on the paper, that's where you get paid, right? That's where your customer is either very satisfied or maybe very dissatisfied. So if I'm a designer doing a branding project or doing some kind of collateral materials for a product, uh, some kind of creative designs or, you know, advertisement or, or uh, other kinds of messaging, seeing the color in print is what I am going to get paid for. It's what's going to make my printed design work or not work in terms of being a communication vehicle. So the thing that's super exciting about the Pantone books is seeing the way it's going to print. And it's not just the formula guide colors that you're familiar with mixing, which again gives us this very bright, rich gamut, but it's also the subtle tones that we see in the pastels guide. Mm-hmm. And even the things that we see in something like a CMYK guide where the colors are duller, they're not the brightest thing, but they can be very expressive of what the designer is trying to communicate or maybe more importantly, what their customer, the brand or the product owner wants to communicate to their their audience the way that they want to make the product feel. So that has a lot to do with the kind of emotional nature of brands and products that a lot of that is connected by color. And if we're going to communicate conventionally or with conventional prints rather than in digital media, then seeing the way that sits on the paper and the way that that's going to look when I use it in my design and I get a proof and I get ultimately press work and manufactured printed product is just, that's, the, the ultimate connection, I think. And that it's, I like that word connection because that leads into sort of where I was going to go with one of the next uh, things I wanted to talk about was how color interacts with emotion in such a unique way where, you know, you can look at certain colors and, and have a feeling or an emotion toward them, or even the words that are used to describe a color, you know, that color can be really pretty. That color is really bold. That color is, is, you know, on fire. Like the way that you can describe these different colors, it's endless. And they, you know, certain colors will have the same description and emotion from a lot of people. That's true. So part of what we know about color technology and, and sort of the way color management works is that the human visual system is actually very consistent. So your reaction to color and my reaction to color may be different. I mean, some things are typical, you know, muted tones and blues and cool colors tend to make us more calm and we mm-hmm. want you to be pretty we want to express an excited emotion. We go towards a warmer color or red or yellow or something really punchy, maybe something really saturated even uh, somewhere else across the spectrum. But the way that our eyes measure color is actually pretty consistent from one human to another. And that's why we can take measurements of a color and the measurement with a spectrophotometer basically doesn't tell me that the color is red or green or blue. I mean, it does if I interpret the data a certain way. What it really tells me is it tells me 
how the color looks in the human visual system. And so that's where that emotion is kind of maybe not exactly the same, but it's relatively the same among different human beings and also among different cultures. You know, in different parts of the world, colors look different and different colors are popular. For instance, if you have seen printing work or press work or, you know, coffee table books, materials that are manufactured near the equator versus things that are manufactured, say, farther into the northern or southern hemisphere, the color is very different. The sun is very direct at the equator. The mm -hmm. colors are very, very bright and saturated. If you're from somewhere, you know, like northern California where I'm from or farther north than this even, you rarely see colors that saturated unless you make it up or see it on your screen or go to somewhere in nature where you have more kind of equatorial direct light that gives you that kind of saturation of the natural colors. Mm -hmm. So doing a press check for a Pantone on the equator versus doing one up in Alaska, you're going to have a slightly different visual. If you look at it in the sun and the light booth the is sun, going to yeah. be consistent, which is why we use the light booth. But in terms of natural color in the real world, the sun yeah. has very different effects as we move to different places around the planet. So we should no longer allow customers to take the press sheet outside and view it in daylight. Nope, we, no, we view it in the light booth. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You know, another... They're permitted, but we don't recommend it. Yeah, there you go. Um, another thing that actually has that connection and, and sort of emotional pull like the colors do is fonts. You know, fonts have a similar reaction where... And the, you know, you could get 10 designers to look at a font and I would say 70 to 80% of them will all have the same sort of descriptive word or emotion come from looking at that font. That's true. Fonts are another aspect of the graphic design process that is really unique and really can convey a feeling and emotion. Mm -hmm. The way that we can convey an emotion with color, we also convey that with not just the typeface that we choose, but the manner in which we use it, you know, the weight and the sort of other things we can do in terms of kerning and letting when we do, when we set type professionally, we can get all kinds of different looks and therefore all kinds of different emotions or ideations kind of from the way we set the type. Yeah. I love it. It'd be really cool to see an exercise where you take a you know, a beautiful hand scripted font that, you know, somebody might describe as pretty or elegant and you hit it with some of the more bold, saturated colors out of the Pantone book just to see if it, you know, versus something that you look at and you're like, oh, that should be a pastel color. Well, what if it's this like bold, deep red or deep forest green? Like, does it make you feel different about it? That'd be an interesting experiment. I think you would find that that's true. The, the, the shape of the character and even whatever artwork you're using and the colors that you associate with it mm -hmm. make up different emotions. That's part of the sort of realm of our visual experience when we look at printed materials. Interesting. A book called Emotional Print. <laughs> Something like that. Um, so now, Lou, I would love to dive into the creation of the sort of the solid, one of the solid Pantone guides um, okay. from how they're printed, how the, you know, what paper you guys are printing that on and, and why that paper is selected. Um, you know, you'll walk me through the production process and I'm sure there'll be a bunch of other questions that come from that. 
Okay, I'm going to actually walk you through a couple of different books here, Dave, and I'm going to start awesome. by talking about the formula guides, which are, okay. again, the guides that are printed with spot colors. This is a immense amount of effort required to create this book. So that's why uh, they're, they're, they're so costly. There's 2,165 colors in the book, which means that to print the book, we need to mix 2,165 cans of ink like you used to mix. Wow. Imagine doing 2,165 of those. We typically print the books in relatively short runs. We run the books multiple times a year. Mm -hmm. um, that means that we mix pretty small quantities of the ink. We mix just enough to run the formula guides that I'm talking to you about and one other set of guides that I'll talk about separately. So the relatively small amount, amounts of ink. The press we use prints 28 colors on the sheet and... That means that in order to print 2,165 color, uh, colors to put in the book, it takes us months to run all those press sheets. Now, to make matters more complicated, the way a color appears, and you'll remember this from when you made drawdowns in the ink room, mm -hmm. the way a color appears on a coated sheet, like a number one clay coated sheet, which is yeah. essentially what we print the formula guide coated on, mm -hmm. is an 80 pound coated sheet very nice looking paper, very bright. We get a very bright appearance when we put that ink on there. Yep. When we look at the uncoated paper, which a lot of designers today like to use matte finish papers or uncoated papers, because again, like we were talking about a minute ago, it's a different motion, mm -hmm. just like a different font, just like a different color. The look and feel of that paper has a lot to do with what I'm communicating as well, and the emotion or the the feeling that I'm going to give the consumer or the person that gets that printed piece. Mm -hmm. So if I take this ink that I mixed up, even though it was really bright and saturated and punchy on the coated paper, and I print it on uncoated paper, it's going to look very different. It's going to look much duller. So after we've mixed up these inks, we start to run the press. We can print 28 colors. We print, of course, a series of sheets that have the first 28 colors on them. On the coated paper, then we have to go print them on the uncoated paper. Now, one thing to understand about the Pantone formula guides is that the formula that we give you, which you know from reading off the page about how to mix the ink, mm -hmm. doesn't change from uncoated to coated. It's the same mixture of ink printed on either an 80-pound coated sheet, or in the case of our uncoated book, it's printed on an 80-pound text sheet uncoated. No clay coat on that paper. And that so is why, actually, and that's why I tell you know designers who are working on branding for customers, when they're you know working through the brand guidelines when it comes to color, you know you're not only picking your hex codes, your RGB values, and all of those sort of things. You're picking the CMYK uncoded and uncoded. You're picking the Pantone colors uncoded and uncoded, because in order to get them visually looking the same, it may not be the same Pantone number between coded and uncoded. Well, that may be true. I mean, typically there is there that's the relationship you want. We can we'll mm -hmm. talk more about CMYK and RGB and other stuff in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. But just in terms of formula, the appearance of that color on the coded and the uncoded is you know, they're correlated by the inks being the same. Yes, you could have a brand that uses one color coded and one color uncoded that either are close together or more likely that are complementary. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But in general, if, if I'm making a style guide for a brand, I'm going to, and I assume they're going to print on coded and uncoded paper for different materials that they do. You know, the business cards probably uncoded, the, some other materials might be coded, or whatever, the sales yeah. sheets, right? I'm going to have probably in my style guide, a combination of coded values that I'd use on the sales sheet yep. and a combination of uncoded values that I might use on the business card if that's going to be an uncoded sheet. Mm-hmm. So to get back to the manufacturing, once we print the 28 colors, we print a, of course, a large number of coded sheets and uncoded sheets. And of course, they're laid out. So we're going to get a number of book pages out of these on a 28 by 40 inch press. It's a full 100 centimeter eight up press. Then we have to, they have to wash up those 28 colors, put in 28 more colors, do it again. So it takes literally weeks and weeks and weeks for us to print that formula guide so long that in fact we don't wait till we've mixed all 2100 colors once we've mixed a few hundred colors we can start running the sheets the ink team is working to continue to mix colors while the people of the press continue to print so that's the basics of the manufacturing sorry Um, lou just to pause you there on that manufacturing i want to i want to just talk about that press for just a minute because you don't have a 28-unit press, correct? That's correct. It's 28 fountains. It's 28, 28 ink fountains across the press. So you've got a bunch of sort of mini ink fountains in each unit of the press. Right. There, no, no one has a 28-color lithographic printing press. In the no. World that I know. 10, 12. You see 12s. 10 or 12 is as high as it goes. No, we don't do it that way because we're manufacturing a precision product. Mm-hmm. So we want to mix the inks and we want the inks to be consistent. So they're basically all going down across the same, through the same ink train, across the same set of rollers so that they're applied very consistently. Mm-hmm. And this is a good place for me to segue a little bit to the technical side so that the audience understands. We're not just printing these colors and saying, well, I mixed it and that's the color because I followed the formula like Dave used to in the ink kitchen and it worked. We don't, believe it worked and it doesn't always work because ink batches change and pigments change. So we go through a very rigorous process. When the ink technicians makes that ink in the ink kitchen, they make a drawdown using precision equipment. Mm -hmm. They measure the drawdown with an X-ray exact instrument, which tells them how close it is to the digital standard. And they mix that ink to be within one Delta E 2000. We won't get too deep in the technical stuff here. But it means it's really, really close. Yeah. We then take that ink, put it in a can. It goes on the shelf. Of course, some time goes by. Get it out on the press. They put it in the fountain of the press. They bring the press up to color. Now they measure it again. At this point, they're using a scanning exact so they can measure across the whole sheet to see, number one, all 28 colors, and number two, how consistent they are across the 40-inch press sheet, right? Because we're not printing it just one book at a time. We're printing it wider. Mm-hmm. So there's another set of tolerances and criteria there. We're typically trying to keep it throughout the whole production process under two delta E. So we're usually under one delta E 2000 when we mix. We're usually at two or around two when we print, when it's wet on the sheet. And then we go back and measure it subsequently three days later because there's some dryback. Mm-hmm. We go back and measure it again three weeks later because there's more dryback. So the way the spot color rinks are formulated... Wow. If we can't run a coder on all of them. The coding wouldn't stick. 
So that means the dryback continues over, we believe, a three-week process. And so some of what we're doing when we're formulating and mixing and running wet is so that when we are dry and we measure it 21 days later, we're still within that two delta E window. And we typically achieve that for about 90% of the colors in any given book that you take off the shelf. Wow. Okay. So you really aren't doing any finishing on those sheets for three weeks too, because if that press sheet is wrong or too far off after the dry back, you're back at the press again. Typically they're right. But I mean, we have to let them dry before we can handle them before we can put them into inventory and cut them and bind them and put covers on them and all the other sorts of things that we have to do before it's the final product the customer gets. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of quality assurance that goes into that. So let's talk a little bit about a second book that we also print, because remember I told you we mix a small batch of ink, mm-hmm. we mix 2,100 inks, we print 2,100 colors to make the formula guide, mm-hmm. but we also have to print what we call the color bridge guides. Mm-hmm. The color bridge is the tool that Pantone offers to let the designer see the difference between what the color will look like printed with spot ink, mixed mm-hmm. ink from the 14 base inks that you're familiar with, versus if they just print it in four color process, CMYK, which happens 90% of the time on conventional print. The designer is all excited. They pick this great color, the brand or their customer loves the colors they have in that coded guide. And they get down to the press and they realize, I don't have enough money to afford to run a seven-color job here. I'm going to run a four-color job on the conventional press. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to take the closest approximation of the Pantone formula guide, the PMS color, in CMYK, and I'm going to have to live with that. Mm-hmm. In order to show you that, we print two whole additional sets of guides called the color bridge guides, We use the same inks that we mixed up to print the formula guide. We print 2,100 colors again across 365 pages of books again. Mm -hmm. Only in the bridge guide, we only print them down the left side of the form. Every one of those pages on the right side, the press forms get put back into the four-color press, and we run process to show you the color which is next to it. So if I have a color that is you know, Pantone 165C mm-hmm. in the bridge guide. That's the coded color. It's mixed from spot color ink. Adjacent to that in the bridge book, you're going to see the color Pantone 165CP. That's the process build. It's yeah. not going to look the same because no. I didn't mix up the color. Sometimes it's close. Sometimes it's very different. But that bridge guide is critical for a number of reasons. Number one, it sets the expectation designer can see what's going to happen and can show their customer, the brand or the consumer, the product person, how it's going to look because we can't afford to print that with a spot color necessarily for your sales brochure or whatever. Mm-hmm. The second thing that the designer gets or number of things the designer gets from the bridge guide is today, it's not just going to be a print piece. I need to make a web piece page. There's going to be some other digital components go on social media. The bridge guide tells me not just the CMYK formula, mm-hmm. numbers to use in Illustrator, Photoshop, or InDesign to match that color, but also the hex value, which mm-hmm. is hexadecimal values that we use in HTML to get that color on the web, and the RGB values to use in the sRGB color space if I'm doing some RGB design work in Photoshop or InDesign or Illustrator, 
again to get that same color appearance. Yeah. Won't be the appearance of the spot color, but it will be the appearance of the CMYK or the RGB or what have you. That's the, the compromise color, if you will. And, you know, if you have a conventional print product and it goes to conventional print lithography offset for, you know, brochures or posters or business cards or any of that stuff, that's basically what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand, and it's worth taking a minute to talk to your audience here about digital print. So what often happens today when I design a job for print Mm -hmm. is it doesn't actually get conventionally printed because I only want 500 impressions. Yep. It would cost a fortune to put that on a lithographic press. That's going to go on to a toner press or maybe an inkjet press. Mm-hmm. But it's going to go on to a cut sheet device that prints on much smaller pieces of paper where you can buy a copy of one. Mm-hmm. You can buy a quantity of 100 or 500, and the price is relatively reasonable. It's not as cheap as offset, but offset only gets cheap when you run 20,000 impressions. Yeah, exactly. With a lot of these digital presses today, because they use much more expensive colorants, mm-hmm. the toners or the inks in those devices are much more colorful than conventional printing inks, we can often get back to the formula guide color. So customers hear me say, well, the bridge guide shows you what you're going to get in CMYK. And the designer often thinks, well, that's as good as it's going to get because my customers can't afford to do spot color printing unless I'm really in the branding business from designing packaging. Yeah. I'm designing conventional print for brochures and posters and collaterals. It's going to be CMYK, yes. But wait, how many are they going to print? If it's going to go on a digital device like a Konica or a Rico or a Xerox or an HP toner-based system, you can get not all the way back to the formula guide the way which you could with mixed colors. You can get 60 or 70% of the formula guide colors matched on the digital press. So when you're printing digital CMYK, you're going to get a lot closer result to the actual mixed spot color than you would CMYK offset or litho. Often. Depends on the substrate. You have to For use sure. a very high quality substrate. Depends on the digital press. You have to use a modern, modern high quality digital press. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends on the design. Yes. So if I design in CMYK, cause I'm looking at that bridge guide and I'm like, well, it's as good as it's going to get it's going to look the same on the toner press that it does on the conventional press. Mm -hmm. The right practice is to design with the Pantone formula guide, the real 165C color, put that in the job. When that goes on a digital press, the digital front end, the rip, like the fire or whatever your rip digital front end is, going to look up that color. And yes, it's going to give you a better version of it in many cases than you'd get on conventional. Interesting. And that's really just due to, you know, the, the toners and the pigments that are in those toners are just so much stronger and give you so much more flexibility and application um, than, you know, the litho press would. It's a different business model. When you have a toner mm-hmm. for base press, you don't buy a toner by the kilogram the way you do for the press room. Mm-hmm. You buy a toner by the cartridge and it's part of your contract. And if you did the math, it's actually very costly, which means it can be very rich in colorant in many cases, Mm -hmm. very highly pigmented. 
That's awesome. That, that is a great point about the digital thing and wanting the you know the listeners to understand that. Um, moving back to just sort of the finishing of the product guides themselves, um, or the color guides. Once they're all printed in these individual sheets, they're then trimmed down, collated, like punched and bound. Like, can you talk to me about the finishing of those a little bit? Sure. So whether it's the bridge guide or the formula guide, they they look the same. They're the same shaped pages. The pages mm-hmm. are basically cut down into forms we manufacture these in sets they are as you assume correctly collated they're collated not in 40 inch forms but they're collated in sub forms that make a smaller number of books so we can manage an inventory of full press forms and smaller forms and then they're collated and they're cut and they actually go through a special machining process where we put the rounded corners on them Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, they are collated with covers front and back, which are on a cover stock. They're drilled, and then we put the pin through them. That's the final product. After we've drilled it and pinned it, then it goes through shrink wrapping and packaging. We actually serialize most of our higher-end products have a serial number that we inkjet on the back of them so we can identify when we made it, which batch it was, and all that sort of thing. And then there's an automated finishing process where they get put into the beautiful box that all of you in the audience probably see when you buy Pantone guides with what you get out of the package when you buy it from Pantone or from your dealer or from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, with your, what is your estimation on, you know, the time frame when somebody go or, or when you go, all right, we're starting the first form of a new book to actually holding finished books in your hand. Like how long does that process take? It's months. It's literally months. Um, I I don't know the manufacturing process exactly enough. and I'd have to do the math to figure out how long it takes to print 2,100 colors, but it's literally a couple of months from when we put down the first colors to when we put down the 2,165th color and then get all that stuff dried, measured for quality, Mm -hmm. cut down into pieces and manufactured. So there's, there's a long lead time. We probably, uh, just to, to put it roughly for you, it's probably three to four months from the start of that run to when we're shipping those guys. Wow. And you had said that they were print, they're printed in pretty small batches. Um, what kind of small batches are we talking about and, and why well, is that done? We run thousands of books, but it's a matter of supply and demand. If I wanted to run enough books for a year, mm-hmm. then I'd have to mix up a large amount of ink mm-hmm. I'd have to run a huge amount of forms and suddenly I wouldn't be able to get the book turned around in three months. It would take me six months to turn the book around by which time I'd be running out of my inventory. Mm -hmm. So So it's it's more about inventory control. Yeah. It's about inventory control and it's also about product quality. I mean, we get complaints. Not all the guides are perfect. I'm sure you and you, those of you in the audience have seen two different kinds of things. Sometimes we get, print artifacts, hickeys or scratches on the page. And of course we replace those guides under warranty if they're returned within the warranty period. We also get some inconsistency. You can see a difference from one book to the other. And that's just the nature of conventional print. We remind our customers that this is a guide. It's not a reference. It's Mm -hmm. not exactly that color. If you want to see exactly that color, we have a product that you can order on our website, which is called our on-demand products. These are digital drawdowns that we make on an inkjet printer. They are guaranteed within 2 Delta E2000 every single color you order. 
We sell that as stickers. It's big and little swatch cards you can use in your design. So that's the way to get the reference if you have to have a reference. The guide is a guide. They're very close. They're generally within two delta E, but they're not exactly the same. So mm -hmm. because that's an ongoing thing that we want to improve and because X-ray Pantone and by extension our larger uh, company that owns us, which is Danaher, is all about constant quality improvement. Mm -hmm. Part of the reasons for the short run is not just inventory control, but we're constantly adding more steps and more processes and better instrumentation, better process control, so that we continue to improve the quality of the printed product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Always trying to you know, improve the quality of it. That make, makes sense there. So but Every manufacturer is, but with printing, it's a it's a bit of a taller order than if we're manufacturing, you know, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant. So the other thing that I've come across in the, in my sort of print career is, um, you know, I've been matching to a color at press and do, doing a press check, um, you know, as the pressman, and then the customer will come in with their own Pantone book to double check, but their Pantone book looks like it's seven years old and has been through a couple of wars. Mm -hmm. So, how often should designers be replacing these guides, Lou? Because I've seen some that are so yellow that they must have been left in the sun for six years. We see the same thing. And they do honestly yellow after 12 to 18 months. You really have to replace your guides every 18 months. We say 12 to 18. It, it depends on the customer. And for a little freelance graphic designer, it's a pretty costly investment. Mm -hmm. So I would say for that person, they should budget it, do it every year and a half. When we talk to the big brands and I interview customers all the time, like I said, to learn more about how we can make our products better, the brands just budget it. They're like every year, January, you get a new book. And incidentally, I don't know how much of this audience will be in North America or not, but if you're in North America, there's a rebate program in North America. You can get the information from our website. Part of replacing your book every 12 months is download the rebate form and we give you $35 back for every of the old one of the old guides you send in. So that's way the way you keep this turning. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know I didn't even know about that. Yes, yeah, it's a, a well-kept secret. <laughs> not <laughs> not anymore, <laughs> Lou. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I, and I have worked with print shops that don't replace them that often. The print shop it has a different problem. So number one, it gets damaged in the print shop a lot faster than it does in the graphics studio, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we spill ink and coffee and it gets put by the ashtray and there's cigarettes around and all this stuff. So there's just <laughs> this is like oh, this is like 1970s print shop you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's you have to get into some more print shops, Steve. It still happens today. <laughs> Apparently I do. <laughs> so the other reason the print shop has to replace it frequently is not just because they mess the thing up, but because there's always new colors coming. Mm -hmm. Designers buy it because they want more colors, because more colors is better if you're a graphic designer. But mm -hmm. if you're a print provider and somebody comes in with a job tomorrow and they have Pantone 4002 in it, 4002C, and you open up your book and it's not there, which it's not going to be if you didn't replace it since 2019, you're yep. dead in the water. You 100%. can't I show them that it matches. You can't check it before they show up at the press check. Yep. So that's the, the acid test, if you will, besides the fading and all this stuff. You didn't buy a guide since 2019. You don't have the 4,000 series in your book. 
You can look in the index. I think it's on page 362 in the index in the back of your formula guide. If it doesn't have 4,000 series colors on there, it's You're time dead. to replace your book. Not only is it more than two years old and faded and yellowed, you're missing colors. And if you're a print provider, that's just the worst situation you can be in. Oh, yeah. You definitely do not want to be perceived as the expert. And then a customer sends in a file and you don't even know what colors are spec in there. What's because that you don't color? Have... It's not in my book. <laughs> and is, it, is that the same thing for the 9000 series? Like when was that released? That's fairly recent as well. I think 9000 was the previous release. So that would be the colors from 2017, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I've seen. I have been around books recently that don't have the nine thousand series, and a customer has specced the nine thousands um, for their print. Uh, you know, I would be wrong about that. I think nine thousand might actually be in the metallics guide. Yes, it is metallics. So yeah, I think they're I, metallics. I'm sorry, I don't know the history very well here. The new metallics, which were released also a couple of years ago, you'll know those because the base inks are shown in the front. You know, the inks that we mix to make the other colors. Yep. We added a rose gold. So we got, got a it. bunch of new warm metallic colors by using this rose gold ink. So your metallic guide's easy to check. Just look in the front. If it doesn't have rose gold, then that one's out of date. <laughs> let's talk about digital again for a second. So we talked a little about digital print. Mm -hmm. Another important thing to understand is when you get into neons, when you get into metallics, yes, I can reproduce them on a conventional press, usually with post-processing. Mm -hmm. with a way of adding foils or printing on some kind of proper you know, substrate. A lot of digital presses today have metallics or can print with a white toner on a metallic substrate to give you metallic print mm -hmm. or have neon colors. They call them fluorescence. So if you see fluorescent colors in your provider's digital press, there's a good chance they can match the, color, the colors in your Pantone um, your Pantone uh, fluorescence guy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I did not know that digital presses were able to, you know, crank out fluorescence and metallics these days. The modern, some of the modern presses, the higher end ones, have this stuff. So that lets you access both our, our some of our neon colors as well as some of the metallic colors. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I didn't know that. So, you know, if you are looking, you know, as a designer to nail some of those Pantone colors and you're concerned that, you know, your customer doesn't have a big budget or the quantities are low and it's going to be super costly to hit the colors, look at digital, like explore digital printing and find a really good digital printer, um, you know, near you and just do some testing and, and you know, ask some questions. And communicate with the customer. I mean, different scale, you know, it depends on the scale that you're working at. Mm -hmm. I know that there's arrangements where the small brand or small product producer hires a designer to do everything. They're like, you do the design, you get me the print and all that stuff. A little bit larger scale, there's usually a print buyer involved. So there's somebody doing the design and supplying it back to the brand or the, the client, and then mm -hmm. they're buying their own printing. So yeah depending on which of those situations you need to have a conversation with your customer. But the first thing to find out from the customer or from the print, from the, you know, the larger organization that might have a print buyer is mm -hmm. how many are you going to run? You're yeah. going to run 20,000 of these and put them on the shelf for a year. You're going to run 500 at a time as needed or do distributed print where you print it near where you need it. That's all going to be digital. And that opens up a whole realm of possibilities to really using your Pantone formula guide which is the 
the seminal tool of the graphic designer because it has the most color gamut in it, the brightest colors we can pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bridge guy helps me bridge over when I need to do it a different way, like with conventional CMYK or on the web and so forth. And then these other guides we have just give you more choices like metallics and neons and pastels and our CMYK guide, which while they're not the brightest colors, it's the most colors. Mm-hmm. So if you want to find something between two PMS colors and you're not way out at the edge of the gamut in some real bright color, look in the CMYK guide. There's 2,668 colors in there. Roughly 15 or 1,600 of those don't exist in the Pantone system. Yeah. They're not because pan- cool. there's only 2,100 PMS colors, right? And there's 2,800 CMYK colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the you know gone are the days where um, you needed to print offset as a spot color to really hit some good color. You know, digital has opened up a whole world of flexibility. Correct, and and also remember that you depends what you're producing, and we're talking about print on paper. If you're in the branding business or the packaging business, then spot color is still a very typical thing because. When you go to run a package on the packaging press, it's probably a 15-color press. We can easily load up all the spot colors you used and mix them in the ink kitchen. And that's why your branded products like Coca-Cola and Tide and all those things you see in the store where every package looks exactly the same, they match because they're spot color printed. Mm-hmm. You know, that detergent box that you're looking at is sitting next to one that was printed in L.A. and one was printed in Chicago and one was printed in New York. They look identical. That's because they're buying inks that are licensed to be the Pantone base inks and they're mixing them up to match the Pantone color that the brand specifies. Yeah, definitely. And that's what gives you that flexibility, you know, whether you're wherever you're printing it, Pantone 200 is Pantone 200. Correct. Love it. So Lou, to wrap this up, I wanted to just sort of get your advice on, you know, like we've talked about before, it's a, it, it can be a big expenditure for those sort of freelance graphic designers, especially ones who are just getting going out on their own. But what is sort of the minimum that you recommend a graphic designer who's going to be playing in the land of print gets and adds to their collection? I mean, at minimum, I think you need the formula guides because I want you to have the coded and uncoded appearance of the real colors, which you're going to be able to hit 60 to 70, maybe higher percent, maybe as many as 80% on the digital press. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to have a bridge guide so that you have all those bridged information, like how to make the color in CMYK if it's going to be conventionally printed. Mm-hmm. So that would probably be my second choice. Yep. Some people choose to buy just the bridge guide. Mm-hmm. It's not a sin to do so. The bridge guide has the formula guide colors on one side of the page. So you get a formula guide in there. Mm-hmm. and you get all this other information. The only reason I push customers towards having a real formula guide is because the formula guide is an invariant definition. When you say 165C, and I turn to that page and I look it up, there's one chip, one swatch, that's 165C. In my bridge guide, I've got 165C on the left, 165CP on the right, I get it because I'm a graphic designer or print provider. Yeah, one spot and one's process. When I share that to like some customer, some brand or some product designer or some advertising person who's selling a job to, they're liable to look at the wrong side of the, of the page, have the wrong expectation when you run the job. Say, That's not what you promised me. 
Yeah. The formula guide shows you exactly what it's going to be. And then if you find, oh, it's going to be conventional CMYK, you get out the bridge guide and say, sorry, it's going to look like this. Yeah. Or if it's going to be run digitally, you say, hey, why don't you make a proof on the digital press? And then you can say, if they can't hit that color, sorry, it's going to look like this. So the formula yeah. guide is the one place I would start. I want to point out one other thing, David, we didn't talk about. Let's take a minute to to talk about this. Yeah, please. Because another way to get all that information about the RGB and the CMYK and the hex and all that stuff is to use our digital tools. So Pantone Connect is a product that we've just launched in about the last year. It is our platform of the future. It's a complete digital platform. There's a web portion of it where you can pick Pantone colors and find complements and test colors for use with colorblind people and a bunch of other sophisticated things like that. You can create palettes and share them with your colleagues and other people that are part of Pantone Connect. Mm -hmm. There is a phone app, so you can capture colors out of either out of photographs or in the real world using a Connect color card or a Pantone color card. You put it on the object, use the Connect app and point it at the card, and it tells you what the color you're looking at is, what the closest Pantone is. Finally, there's extensions for the Creative Cloud, so you can use these palettes you've created on your phone or on the web directly in Creative Cloud, and you can access all the latest libraries. So that's another way to get the alternate values if you want to use the Bridge Guide CMYK or this RGB or the Hex. If you use the Connect extension, that all shows up directly in your Adobe applications. That's so cool. Connect is another thing to be aware of. It'll be a paid product later this summer. I don't know. We'll probably broadcast here in the summer. Um, check it out. And at the current time that we're recording this, it's actually free because it's in beta. We'll, there'll be a cost to it sometime soon, but I don't imagine it will be very expensive for you to subscribe for a, a month if you want to try it or a year if you want to use it on a regular basis. So that brings up a, just a, sort of an interesting other question, Lou, is when it comes to color, um, when I'm viewing something printed on a coded sheet, um, or sorry, let's just use Pantone 200 just for simplicity. Looking at Pantone 200 on a coded sheet, okay, it's great, it matches the Pantone guide. When I'm viewing Pantone 200 as a electronic chip on my phone versus viewing it on screen, like that's not all gonna be consistent, is it? Or is technology right. at a point where it is? You're getting into the disconnect between the physical world and the digital world. Yes. So on your phone, it probably won't be correct. It's really hard to say how precise it will be because it depends on your phone and the OS and a bunch sure. of other things. Yeah. Um, I would not rely on my phone for that, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, on the screen, it's not going to match unless I have a calibrated display. Mm -hmm. This is a very sort of poorly understood area of graphic design and color management. I can buy a calibrator for my monitor for somewhere between $100 and $300 that'll measure colors on my screen, make an ICC profile, and I'll have a profile monitor. Will it look like what I print? Maybe. The colors on the screen will probably be right. But in order to compare them to a print or to my fan book from Pantone and prove that it's right, I need to be in a controlled lighting booth environment, the light booth we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So 
if you're serious about this, and a lot of the brands are really serious and they have color management and what we call soft proofing, mm-hmm. WYSIWYG, what I see on the screen is what prints working perfectly. But to do that, it takes more than just a $300 calibrator. You need the $300 calibrator. You need a monitor that costs at least $1,000 that has the proper electronics for rendering all the neutral tones and all the steps of lightness that you need to, the steps mm-hmm. of gray. And you need a light booth mm-hmm. sitting next to your monitor that's also D50, which you're going to calibrate your monitor to, or the whole system will work. So it's a good point. Another reason to have the physical guide is because you can take that guide, you can go in the light booth. Mm-hmm. Remember, too, that we view color in a light booth. D50 is the international standard for viewing printed color. Yes. If you go to the last page of your Pantone fan guide, your formula guide, your bridge guide, it's not in the smaller ones, but in the big books, there's a lighting indicator. It's a chip. It's a swatch. It looks like it's two different colors. As soon as you go in the D50 light booth, it turns into one color. Yeah, that's Now amazing. you know you're in a safe place to look at color, and now you use your Pantone guide and the printed form or the proof from the printing company to see how close you are. Yeah. Yeah, man. There's so much when it comes to color science. Now, uh, luckily, a, a lot of print out there, you know, you're not getting customers after it's printed, taking, you know, a, you know, an electronic meter and just checking that they printed the correct color. They're going to look at it with their eyes and go, that's pleasing color. Happy days. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are applications and customers that are so specific about that brand that it needs to be nailed absolutely nailed like down to delta like what you were talking about yeah Um, and that's where these tools are available for too x-ray x-ray offers all the tools to do that all this both the hardware to make the measurements and also the software tools to do the tracking and the calculations and to create you know reports and scorecards and so forth so that you can show the quality of your printed product to the brand customer Lou, this has been awesome. Just giving us the insight on what it takes to create a Pantone guide, the amount of work and time and effort that goes in and the almost the science behind color and creation. And Pantone is the leader in that column. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time and giving us the insight of this. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. I enjoyed it. All right, that's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and learning more about Pantone with me here on this episode. If you are digging what you're hearing on the Print Design Podcast, please take a second and head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you were listening to this, and leave me a rating and a review. It helps more people find the show and ultimately helps more people learn about print and experience the marvel and the joy of producing print, a tangible object. Thanks so much and we'll see you next week.